ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. 1 Samuel 11, here at Redemption, this is a part of who we are, what we do. We just travel through books of the Bible. That's typically the way that we're going we're gonna to do things. Yeah, every once in a while we may do some sort of uh, uh, series on something. Uh, but typically, we're just going to travel through books of the Bible. And right now, we're in the middle of going through the book of 1 Samuel. It's been an epic study. It's been really, really great for us to be able to, uh, to experience traveling through together. I know I've enjoyed it quite a bit. And to, today, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 11. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my privilege to serve you in the scriptures. I'm excited about uh, being able to open them up together with you. Now, before we jump into all this together today, I just wanted to start with a thought and kind of paint a picture of what the Old Testament is and how it sort of works within modern, uh, nowadays, you know, New Testament Christianity. Essentially, one of the big things to grasp when you're looking at the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, it represents in a lot of ways an illustration for Christianity and Christians in the New Testament. So when you see the way that Israel is dealt with, the decisions they make, the details that are pulled out, a lot of it is actually illustrating your life in Christ uh, this side of the cross. And, and so being able to see that and pull that stuff out is really important. Now, while these are real stories, and I, don't, I even hesitate with the word story because that sort of conjures up the idea of you know, some sort of fable or fairy tale, that's a real story, a real narrative about real people. While that's true of the Old Testament, it's also an example of much more. So I just want to paint one of those pictures for you. It's the nation of Israel and their progression from Exodus to where we're at today. In Exodus, what we find is that in the very beginning of Exodus, the nation of Israel is held captive as slaves in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh would represent Satan, Egypt would represent the world, and they are captive. This is you before Jesus comes into your life. This is you before you're saved. Uh, this might describe some of you even here today, that, that you haven't received Jesus as your Savior. You haven't dedicated your life to follow him. This is where you're at. You are enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to satanic influence. And then what happens? Well, they are, the nation of Israel is delivered from Egypt. How? By the blood of a lamb. That's how that they're delivered from Egypt. So Jesus dies, his blood is spilled, and you are delivered from the world and saved. That, that's the moment of salvation. From there, they go to the Red Sea, and as they cross the Red Sea, they are going into the waters of baptism. That's New Testament water baptism. What, what you're declaring in water baptism is I'm going into the water, and I'm not coming out the same direction. I'm going a new direction. I'm completely disconnected from that old life. They couldn't go back across the sea. They were stuck on the other side, and that's what baptism is all about. And then they go out into the desert. God leads them out into the desert. You ever experience a dry time in your life in Christ? You ever have that dry season where you're wondering, God, did you abandon me? Did you leave me? Have you led me out here to die? That, that's what they were thinking. And that 11-day journey from Egypt to the promised land actually took them 40 years. Why? Disobedience and faithlessness. There's dry seasons that come into your life, and God isn't trying to kill you. He's trying to grow you. The difference is, are you going to experience a short period, an 11-day journey, or are you going to experience a 40-day journey, a 40-year journey, excuse me? The difference is your obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. Will you trust him? Will you trust him through that process? Then they come to the Jordan River, and this is an important moment for every Christian. 
This is a moment, sadly, that many Christians do not experience. It's the, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Jordan River is similar to the, to the Red Sea, but it's not the same. And, and, and in this, they cross over the Jordan River, and that represents going from outside the promised land to inside the promised land. It go, it's from all the stuff that are, are these ideas about what it could be like in the Lord to now stepping into the fullness of what God has for you. That's what happens when you step across that Jordan River, when you go into the baptism of the, or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. And then when they get into the promised land, the promised land isn't heaven, because when they get into the promised land, you know what they have a lot of? Battles. They have a lot of fights to go through. If, if Jesus, you know, if we're in heaven, I don't expect to have any battles in heaven, right? Jesus is king. He's sitting on the throne. We're there worshiping him, enjoying life for all of eternity. Uh, there's no battles to be fought. There is no sin. There is no issues going on. So the, the promised land that we go into is the fullness of life in Christ. And yet, there are strongholds of the enemy in your life, and the way that you take them down is by the Holy Spirit leading you uh, into those kinds of battles. Now, this story in 1 Samuel, where we find ourselves in chapter 11, it's actually a bigger story than what we're reading. What we're going to see in 1 Samuel 11 is Saul, Jabesh, uh, an, an enemy that comes against the, uh, the, the people, and then Jabesh, Gilead, and, and you know, we're going to be, we could just read it and go, yep, there's a story about how Saul beat up some bad guys. But the truth is, is that it's not actually about that. It's about Jesus and you and your enemy. That's what this is about. And so when we see this from the right perspective, we're able to gather what the Lord is doing in our lives. In chapter 10, we saw that Saul was anointed and appointed as king. He was anointed as the king. He was appointed as the king. And yet the nation was still divided the way the chapter ends in chapter 10. Saul goes back to his hometown. He doesn't actually take the throne. And, and so through chapter 11, we see that God is actually establishing Saul as the king. So here's our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 11 today. It's this. Your enemy is dangerous, dominant, and deadly, and can only be defeated by King Jesus. That's what we're looking at in 1 Samuel chapter 11. So let's read the chapter. We're going to read all of it. It's 15 verses. And then we'll go back through and we'll break it down together. It says this. 1 Samuel 11.1, 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people uh, that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul and when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the, uh, by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so, shall, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. Then, then he numbered them. In uh, Bezek, and the children of Israel were 300,000, and the children of Judah, 30,000. Verse 9, and they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. 
Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, uh, that you may do with us what you, whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they, had, uh, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Saul shall, uh, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word today, and we pray that as we do so, that you would speak to us. God, help us to see you high and lifted up and glorified. Help us to see how this uh, story is really not, a, not, not just a story that's stuck in the annals of history, but it illustrates our life in you. And give us the faith and courage to follow you, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, today as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to look at it in three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 3, a real enemy with a real threat. Verses 4 through 10, a real savior with a real plan. And then verses 11 through 15, a real victory with a real kingdom. Saul and uh, the nation of Israel have just experienced in chapter 10 God moving in supernatural, miraculous ways. God takes this man who's really just not a, a spiritual guy, comes upon him, he joins the worship team, starts prophesying, God miraculously selects his family, uh, his tribe, his clan, his family, and then Saul, and, and he's appointed as the king. And in this, God has empowered uh, and revealed Saul as the king. And, and this is, it's one of those moments that can be those mountaintop experiences. You know when God just moves in these really crazy ways, ways that you don't expect, and it just kind of comes through in ways that you're not expecting uh, to happen. And, and in, in this, mountaintop moments, what they do is they often invite the enemy's attack. That's exactly what takes place. Chapter 10 is God moving in these crazy, miraculous ways. And then chapter 11, the enemy presses the attack immediately. You see, a powerful move of God is often followed by a powerful attack from the enemy. That's something that you and I need to ex expect. That's something that you and I need to look for the pattern of in our lives as we're following the Lord. Because oftentimes, God will move in our lives in these tremendous ways. And right behind it, the enemy is going to press the attack. Why? Because he's going, to, he's going to try to stop the move of the Lord in your life. If he can stop the advancing of God moving in your life, then you just stay stuck. But, but if you can know that the attack is coming and when it comes, it doesn't keep you back on your heels. It doesn't catch you off guard. You're ready for it. And you defend the attack and you keep moving forward. Then the Lord moves in much more powerful ways in your life. Now, through 1 Samuel 11, God uses the enemy's attack as an opportunity for his people to advance. The kingdom is established through this adversity. And so much so, the kingdom of God is established within you, within me, through the adversity that we normally would avoid. That this is the way that God leads us. You see, what was intended for evil was used for good 
by God's great power. So this first part, verses 1 through 3, is a real enemy with a real threat. Look back at verse 1. It says this, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now this may seem like a, a quick verse, but these, these verses, these three verses, they are packed with so many things for us to pull out. I'm going to do my best to move through it fairly quickly. But, but in, essentially, here's what's happening. Some time passes, and a specific enemy with a specific leader shows up to attack an Israeli city. It's the Ammonites led by this guy, Nahash. Now, I, I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with the Ammonites, but the Ammonites are the enemy of God. Uh, they're the enemy of God's people. Um, and their, their beginnings actually come from Genesis chapter 19. It goes all the way back to Genesis 19. Nahash, or excuse me, Ammon is actually uh, from the descendants of Lot. That after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they were completely destroyed. Lot's two daughters get him drunk to get pregnant by him. And one of the sons is the father of the people of Ammon. That, that's where Ammon comes from. So you're like, wow, didn't really realize I was going to see Jerry Springer at church today. But that's the way that it goes. Right? This is the craziness that's happening within Scripture. So in this, uh, Ammon represents a lot of things. He, he represents the work of the flesh. He represents the, the sinful nature, the, the great depravity and the disgusting way our, our flesh wants to lead us. He uh, represents faithlessness, that there's a lot that's wrapped up within the people of Ammon, and they are perpetually an enemy of the nation of Israel. Every time Ammon shows up, they're an enemy of the nation of Israel. Now, Ammon is led by a really specific guy. Nahash is the guy that is leading the nation of Ammon. And the, the people of Ammon, they're these sort of um, marauders. They kind of roam around and just take over uh, different things. So they have a, 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 um, uh, they're known to be able to just destroy uh, cities and, and towns. Uh, so Nahash, his name actually means snake. It means serpent. I'll give you one guess as to who he represents. Who's the serpent in scripture? It's Satan. So, so think about it like this. That, that the, the devil or the, the, uh, is, is what's represented in Nahash. That the flesh is being led by the devil to attack God's people. Sound familiar? That's, that's exactly what we live in all the time. That, that you're probably not necessarily being attacked by Satan himself. I, I'm not, definitely. We're just not important enough because he can't be everywhere at once like the Lord is. He's just, he's just one being. Uh, and, and so you are, though, being attacked by satanic force. And the, the tactic is to use your fleshly desires. That's what James says. You're led away by your fleshly desires. That's what takes place. And so that's what's being Manipulated. You see, the people of Jabesh Gilead uh, are also an interesting people. That Jabesh is a city that's located in central Israel. So if you if you think of a map of Israel, they're located in central Israel, but they are on the east side of the Jordan River. That there were two and a half tribes when the nation of Israel came to take over the the Canaan uh, the land of Canaan, take over the Promised Land. Two and a half tribes stayed on the wrong side of the river, the east side of the river. And this is one of the cities that stayed on the wrong side of the river. And when the enemy attacks, who do they attack first? The ones who won't go into everything God has for them. The ones who won't cross over into the promised land. The ones who settle on the outside. Because when you refuse to step into all that the Lord has for you by faith, you make yourself a target of the flesh 
and a target of the devil. That's what happens. That's what happened to them. They just, they just, it wasn't that they couldn't do it. It wasn't that it wasn't available to them. It was that they refused to step into everything that God had for them. They refused to, ha- to experience the coming on of the Holy Spirit, the coming on power of the Holy Spirit to move into more. And because of that, they made themselves a target of the enemy. And, and sadly, notice at the end of verse 1 what happens. Uh, they, they send out a, a word. Jabesh sends out a word to Nahash. And they say, hey, make a covenant with us. Make an agreement with us that we may serve you. Jabesh, instead of fighting the enemy, tries to make a treaty with the enemy. You can't make peace with the flesh and the devil. Have you found that out yet? You can't make peace with your flesh. You, you, your flesh is going to tempt you. to. Th- and when I say flesh, I don't mean your skin and bones. That, that's not what I mean by the flesh. There's something that's in you that loves what's evil. Did you know that? That there's, there, I see it all the time with my kids. Like when they were little, there was, uh, you know, my girls, I have all girls. Um, if we wanted to cause World War III, we would introduce some lip gloss. <laughs> Especially, you know, the one with the stick. They loved that one. I don't know what it is about the stick applicator where you do it in and it's really glossy, you know, real shiny or whatever. We introduced one of those. They will murder each other to get the lip gloss. We didn't teach them to do this. They just, it was just in them. They wanted to do this because there's something inside of us that loves what's wrong. There's something inside of us that loves what's evil. That thing is the flesh. That's what the Bible describes as the flesh. And, and so the, the, here, the flesh, you can't make peace with it. We are, we are tempted by the flesh to just say, you know what, I'll just give in a little bit, I'll appease the flesh, and it'll leave me alone. And it never works. If you give in a little, it's not going to stop there. It's going to take more, it's going to take more, and it's going to take more. You can't make peace, you can't make an agreement with the flesh and the devil. They will never stop. Romans 8, 12 through 13 says it like this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Sinful nature is another, another way to save the flesh. What your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. You don't make a treaty with it. You make a grave for it. That's what you do. You put it to death. You don't feed it, you starve it. And so Nahash, he, uh, he responds in verse 2, and he says, hey, you know, I'll make a treaty with you guys. Here's my, here's my conditions. You come out and you let me poke out all of your right eyes. Let me think about that for a minute. Sounds terrible. <laughs> you know, like, no, why would I want to do this? Well, here's the thing. His terms of surrender are brutal. And essentially, he says, yes, I'll let you live. Yes, I'll let you serve me. But I'm going to do this by taking out your right eye. You see, when we, when we see Nahash do this, his tactics and his terms of surrender, they give us insight into this spiritual attack that we endure from the enemy of our souls. That, that number one, the first thing that we see happen in verse one is that they came and they encamped. They encircled the, the nation of Jabesh. And when they did this, encircling the nation of Jabesh, uh, this was an intimidation tactic. This is one of the biggest things that the enemy is going to do with you. The, the enemy is going to pursue you to get you to be afraid. Notice the enemy couldn't control the people of Jabesh. They could only manipulate them into fear. It's the same thing with you. Satan can't control you. Satan can't get you to do things that, that, that you don't choose to do, but he can, he can manipulate you through fear. And that was the first tactic that they did. And he says, okay, here, I want to poke out your eyes. Well, what's going on with that? Well, number one, I want to blind you. 
I want to blind you either fully or at least in part. And that's what the enemy is looking to do with you, to blind you, to cause you to be able to, to, un, to, to not be able to see correctly, to see rightly where the things are in the world. Having one eye, these people would be unable to, fight, uh, unable to fight or even ineffective in a fight. Depth perception would be off. Um, there's some that talk about how, you know, the way that they would fight is uh, with shields on their left hands. And so if, you know, if you have a shield in your left hand, then as you pull that up, then it's going to block your left eye. So then you, all you can do is see out of your right eye. Well, now you're totally blind. And so, the, you know, the idea would be that you're completely unable to fight. And that's the tactic of the enemy, that you're no longer useful in the fight for the kingdom of God. You're just sidelined. You're just stuck out of the fight, not, not moving forward any longer. And then finally, notice what he says there, not only to put out your eyes, but see what it says at the end of verse two, and bring reproach on all Israel to humiliate you in the process. That when you give in to the flesh, when you give in to the devil, humiliation is all that you get. And it's not just humiliation for them, but notice it was on all Israel. This wasn't just about Jabesh. This was about the entire nation of Israel, but this was the first step that was going to be taken. Notice what Jabesh does in verse 3. They ask for a seven-day uh, you know, hold, hold off so that they can uh, uh, figure out what to do and ask for some help. They ask for seven days to see if anybody's going to help, and, and apparently Nahash agrees. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty Pretty great, bold move, Cotton. You know, like, what is going on with this guy? He, he agrees to these this seven days, and, and essentially he thinks either one, that no one's going to come. Yeah, send for help, because ain't nobody coming. They know my reputation. They know how bad I am. They know that I decimate populations. And so, you know, whatever. Go ahead, send for help. And Or secondly, or both, even if they do show up, it's not going to matter, because the nation of Israel isn't known as a military nation at this time. They're just, they're just some farmers hanging out, trying to hold on to their land. And so he, he believes, you know, they're, they're just not going to, it won't even matter. Nobody's going to come or it's not going to matter even if they do. And so Jabesh is in an impossible situation, a hopeless situation. And they recognize they can't deliver themselves, that they need someone to save them. And what I would say is that this is actually a great place for Jabesh to be in. It's a really important place for them to be in. Because unless you're in these kinds of places, you don't recognize the need for a Savior. Unless the Lord brings you to the end of yourself, unless God puts you in impossible situations, you're going to think that you have it under control, that everything's fine. But when you're in the impossible situation, that's when you know that you need a Savior. You see, if you will not recognize that you are doomed, then you will not recognize that you need a Savior. This is an important part of the gospel message, especially when you're talking about the gospel to your friends and family members. Jesus, a lot of the American gospel is Jesus is going to make your life better. And that's nonsense. He might make it worse. <laughs> Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. That's what Jesus said. I came to bring division. And sometimes when you choose to follow the Lord, what ends up happening is people who should be for you, they end up turning against you. You end up making enemies of people who should be on your side simply because you've chosen to follow Jesus, not because you're a jerk. I mean, you could make enemies because of that, but it's not any of that stuff. It's not that they just don't like you anymore or whatever. It's because you chose to follow Jesus. 
Because Jesus, Jesus brings division. The choice to follow him brings division. And if we're not willing to tell people you've got to abandon your sin in order to get salvation, if we just tell them, yeah, Jesus just loves everybody and everybody's welcome to come in and you can just do whatever you want and Jesus just loves everything and you know what? We're just gonna change morality to make sure everyone feels accepted. We are forsaking the truth of the gospel. And you know what happens when a church preaches that? A lot of unconverted people are part of the church. And then the church is more about entertaining goats than feeding sheep. That's what it ends up being. And if there's anything I could say about the American church, it's that. That's what it's become. It's a lot of self-help stuff. It's a lot of tips on how to be a better this, that, or the other. And it's not, the gospel has just been abandoned. We're not willing to forsake our sin any longer. And until we know that we're doomed, why are we doomed? Because we have a very real enemy who really hates us. You have your flesh that hates you, that's trying to, to take you down. You have the, the devil that hates you, that's trying to take you down. You have the world that's against you, trying to take you down. But more than that, even more difficult and more scary than that, hear me on this, some of you are going to be like, this is crazy. You have God to answer to. Jesus' salvation by his cross, his blood is spilled to save you Yes, from yourself. Yes, from the devil. Yes, from the world. But even more so, from God. Because the righteous wrath of God is what you and I deserve. And until we realize that reality, we'll see no need. For, why, why would I need Jesus? I don't need a guilt trip about you know, my life and how it's wrong. And I, I don't need a, a, a bunch of religious hoops to jump through. I don't need more stuff to do during my week. I'm already too busy. I don't need to go listen to some redheaded guy yell for an hour like, this is crazy. I don't want to do this stuff. But when Jesus moves in and he changes everything, he reprioritizes everything, that's the moment when salvation happens. Yes, Jesus will, will accept you just as you are, but he's not going to leave you that way. You've got to be willing to say, this is wrong, Jesus, will you fix it? And that's where salvation comes from, understanding that, that we need him. You see, when you recognize that your sin demands God's judgment and his wrath, then you see the value of Jesus as your Savior. All right, secondly, not only a real enemy with a real threat, but a real Savior with a real plan, verses 4 through 10. Verse 4, he says this, So the messengers came to Jabez of Saul and told the news and all the hearing of the, of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there, uh, there was Saul coming uh, behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So one of the messengers uh, gets to the hometown of Saul. And upon hearing what's happening, they erupt with defeated hopelessness and grief. They just explode with, with this grief. This impossible situation comes to their ears and they're just overcome with grief. You see, impossible situations can easily cause us to become overwhelmed. You ever get overwhelmed in an impossible situation? If you're not saying yes, then you didn't live this last year, right? There's impossible situations that come into our lives, and they easily overwhelm us. And here's the thing. In those moments, this is where our emotions begin to take command of our lives. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because the truth is that we need to command our emotions instead of the other way around. When your feelings lead and you put your faith in your feelings, then the facts are forced to follow. And you know what you get out of that? Chaos. That's all you get. There, there, is, there is only chaos when feelings are leading. That's all you get. 
But there's another option. You see, your feelings are erratic, they're unpredictable, at times they're irrational, and you cannot trust your feelings to lead. But you can switch this and you can put the facts at the head, and when you put your faith in the facts and you force your feelings to follow, then you get certainty. You see, these two are often at odds with one another. You ever feel stuff that's just not true? But you feel it. You, your feelings just are. They're not good. They're not bad. They just are. They're just feelings. And so it's not that feelings are bad or that we got to abandon our feelings. No. God has given us emotion, and it's good to have emotion. But when we allow our emotion to lead, then it will lead us away from truth a lot of times. Because it's just irrational and erratic many times. But when you force your feelings to follow the truth, then the steady, predictable, and logical reality leads the way. We must have the facts leading our lives. The key, it's not to insulate yourself from feelings, but to learn the discipline of proper emotional management. Emotional mismanagement is what gets us into so many troubles, so many issues. We, we don't manage our emotions, we eat them. We don't manage our emotions, we explode on people. We don't manage our emotions, we buy things, and we, we run up our debt, whatever it is. So, so we mismanage our emotions, and then we heap upon ourselves all of these issues and problems, and then it feels even worse. When instead, if we would learn to manage our emotions properly and, and to force them to follow the truth then we would find freedom in the middle of that. And so Saul comes in from the field to see what's happening. Uh, and it's, it's amazing that these people, they're erupting in this emotional uh, kind of way. And Saul, he comes in from the field. And, and I think it's amazing that th- this is what's going on with Saul because he could have been at home pouting like a child, right? I was anointed king. Why don't I have a throne, you know? But he goes home and he just starts working again. He just starts, he goes out to the field, takes his oxen and goes out to plow the field. And so this is an amazing thing that we see in, in, inside Saul. Now Saul experiences in verses 6 through 7 the coming upon of the Holy Spirit once again. And what takes place can actually be shocking for us to read. Look at verse 6. It says this, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever doesn't go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. You see, Saul is, experiences the coming upon of the Holy, excuse me, the Holy Spirit, and what does he do? He gets mad and chops up some oxen. You're like... I thought that, you know, when the Holy Spirit came upon you, you would just, you know, be nice. I thought that's what was supposed to happen. I didn't know get mad and cut some animals in pieces was like part of stuff that the Holy Spirit could lead you in. Absolutely. It says that his, his anger was greatly aroused. When did that happen? When the Holy Spirit came upon him. That this is, for, for some of us, this is like really hard for you to, to put together with Christianity because you're like, mad people and Christianity don't go together. We're supposed to just sit around and say nice words and not let people, uh, or just let people do whatever they want and just kind of, you know, smile at them. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Uh, no, that's not it at all. You see, this idea of greatly aroused, it's more than just a little frustrated or a little perturbed. Saul is livid, literally boiling over with anger by the Holy Spirit. 
Did you know that the Holy Spirit can lead you that way? That the Holy Spirit can lead you in this kind of a thing. You see, the belief that passiveness equals godliness is unbiblical and foolish. Christians are not to be passive. You don't just sit by and let everything happen and just go, well, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing because that's what Gandhi did. Gandhi wasn't a Christian, right? Like, come on. Yeah, Jesus sacrificed himself, but that doesn't mean he's weak. Does that make sense? He's, his strength was displayed by going to the cross. And he's coming again as a conquering king. I mean, there's a, there's a very intimidating view of Jesus in Revelation. His eyes are filled with fire, sword coming out of his mouth. He's got tattoos, his robes dipped in blood. Like, he's intimidating in, in Revelation. A lot of people say, that, like, oh, here's Gandhi. Gandhi said, I like your Jesus, I just don't like your Christians. Right? He had a wrong view of Jesus. He thought Jesus was like him. Gandhi wanted to worship himself, not Jesus, not the, not the true Jesus. And so the, the idea of being passive and that being godly, that's unbiblical and foolish. And that's a big reason why men don't want to go to church. Right? Men have a hard time going to church because they get there and they're like, how do I win at this? How does this work? I, I don't understand uh, what this is all about. They're being sold a weak, feminized version of Jesus. And they're like, I don't want that. I don't want any of that kind of stuff because, I don't know, I kind of want to go compete at some things. I want to shoot some guns and grow a beard and, you know, arm wrestle or something. Like, there's stuff within guys that we, there's this, this thing that's within us that we don't want, I don't want to follow someone I would marry. Does that make sense? How do you dig yourself out of that one? I don't want to follow... A weak Jesus. I want to follow a strong Jesus. I don't want to, I don't want to follow a, a, a female version of, I didn't call you weak. Uh, I don't want to follow a female version of Jesus. I want to follow a manly version of Jesus. Because he's not. he's not. He's not weak. He's not feeble. He's not unable. He's not, he's not some, someone that's just going to be rolled over and steamrolled. That's not, what, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is strong. Jesus is capable. Jesus is powerful. And that's not to say that women aren't. But it's to say that when we, when we emasculate him and strip him of his strength and then try to say that that's who he is, we just create this form of Jesus that really it's not true. It's not who he really is. Here's how John chapter 2, verse 13 through 16 says it. It was nearly the time of the Jewish Passover uh, celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem with the, uh, in the temple, um, and he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. So... Uh, he also saw dealers uh, at tables exchanging foreign money. So Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle and scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Right? This isn't the, the, the emo Jesus with you know, the hair going across his eye, you know, sitting in the corner saying, I don't know, guys. I don't, we should, probably should just be nice. Like this is, he made a whip. And this guy by himself drove out hundreds of people. And that, that's intimidating. That's, that's powerful. That's strength that Jesus was able to do this. He didn't like take the coins and go, oh, I'm just going to throw it. He flipped the tables and the coins scattered everywhere. But notice that Jesus, not only was he angry, right? I, I would say he was angry. He was also under control. There were birds that were mentioned in that section. 
We don't see anything about Jesus turning over the bird, the bird cages and smashing them and killing birds, right? He actually tells people in the next verse, you guys take these birds out of here. Carry them out of here. He was angry but under control, right? So this idea of, of anger and it not necessarily being sin doesn't mean you get to be Hulk and smash stuff and, and you know, have a blind rage fest going on. That's not what this is talking about. That, that Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That anger is not sin, but what you do with it can be sin. And that's the problem that we have. When we allow our feelings to follow or to lead, then it can lead us into sin. You see, not all anger is godly and not all anger is ungodly. And the difference is, the difference is typically selfishness. What am I mad about? Saul's not mad about himself and oh, they offended me. They didn't give me the kingdom. They, here's these, you know, whatever. He's mad about God's glory. That's what he's angry about. And so Saul sends a message uh, about their, uh, you know, their oxen. He says, hey, if you guys don't come out, then your oxen are going to be chopped up. Th- this idea, it's, mo- it's not a threat. He's not saying, hey, if you don't show up, I'm going to come cut your oxen up. It's a warning. It's not a threat. It's a warning. You see, the enemy's not just going to stop at one city. You think the enemy's going to stop at Jabesh Gilead? No, that's the beginning. And if we don't stop them now, then they're going to get stronger and stronger, and you're going to be taken over as well. The enemy comes for everything, and soon the entire nation will be overthrown. At this moment, it would be sinful for Israel to do nothing. The temptation is for, the, for, them, uh, for us to think that if I just give a little to the enemy, then they'll leave us alone. But that's not what's going on. And the people, you know, the people here, they're not afraid of Israel. Notice at the end of verse 7, the fear of the Lord fell on the people. You see, the fear of the Lord is what called the people to action, not their fear of Saul. It was about faithfully following the Lord, not about Saul and his threat against them. And so Israel responds in verse 8, and 330,000 men show up ready for battle. And uh, they send a message to Jabesh uh, that, uh, um, you know, they're going to come. And so then it says, I love what it says there uh, at the end of verse 9. It says, then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. You think? Like, help's on the way. Oh, that's awesome. I really didn't want to get my eye poked out. Like, that's a good day. And so I'm, I'm sure they were pretty glad, pretty glad. All right, so a real enemy with a real threat, a real savior with a real plan, and then thirdly and finally, verses 11 through 15, a real victory with a real kingdom. Notice verse 11. It says, So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul is a guy who's a farmer. He leads an inexperienced army and executes a multi-pronged attack in the morning watch, which is between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and completely decimates Ammon. How in the world does this happen? This is a brilliant military strategy, but it's not because Saul is so awesome. That's not why. It's because the Holy Spirit has come upon Saul. That what Saul needed in the moment, God was able to provide. That, that, that God gave him the plans, he gave him the people, he gave him the courage, and they moved together in this way. Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary, Be Successful, Saul succeeded because he was empowered by the Spirit of God who both used Saul's natural gifts and gave him the wisdom and strength he needed. Being at the head of an inexperienced army of 330,000 men wouldn't be an easy task, but God gave the victory. We, the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God can't keep us and use us. 
That's an important, important concept to grasp there. God was leading Saul this direction, but it was his grace that was making it possible for the victory to happen. You see, the victory is complete. It's so thorough that very few of the Ammonites survive, and those who do are just scattered. And, and this, this is also true of our Savior, our Savior, King Jesus, that his victory is complete, that through his cross, he completes a thorough and complete victory. There's nothing left to do, not by him and not by you or me, that Jesus' victory is total and complete. There's what Jesus said in John 19, uh, 30. He said, when, it says, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed, him, uh, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus declared it to be finished. And in that moment, that was to say there is no work left to be done. So much so that when Jesus ascends into heaven, we're, we're told that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What, is, what does that mean? That the work is finished. He's not standing to do anything. The work is totally done. The, the victory that we need won on our behalf is thoroughly done by, the, by Jesus and his work at the cross. Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said... Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that, they, that we may put them to death. You see, every battle is actually two battles. It's not just one battle. There are actually two battles going on. It doesn't matter what the battle is over. It doesn't matter what the, what the battle is about. This is a physical fight that's happening here. But the battles that you are fighting in your life, there are actually two different battles that are happening. There's an outward battle, and there's also an inward battle. But you typically only see the outward one, right? You only see what's happening out here. You don't really necessarily know what's going on inside. You see, Saul has just experienced an incredible outward victory. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He has this brilliant military strategy. The people rally around him. They, they have experienced this overwhelming victory against Ammon. It's almost effortless. They just kind of go through the motions and get it all done. And, and in all of that, he experiences this crazy outward victory. But now... He's faced with an inward battle that has, is just as dangerous and just as deadly. Here in, in this, in this moment when the people say, let's kill those guys who were against you, he's facing three major issues. And I stole these from David Guzik because he's smart. The first one is insecurity. The, the inward battle that he's facing in this moment is insecurity. Is, is he going to compare himself, compare me against you? That, that these guys, they were, they were uh, you know, they, they fought against me and they rejected me. They, thought, uh, they said I'm not a good, a good leader and so I compare myself against these other good leaders and, and I've got this insecurity that I'm wrestling with. That, that's the, the first part of this, uh, these issues of this inward battle that he's dealing with. The second one is revenge. He has this moment to be able to take revenge on them. Now he's ascended to power. Now he can just say, yeah, let's kill those guys because they were against me. Now I can, I can avenge myself. It's to say that I'm going to use ungodly anger from me to you. And thirdly, this third inward battle he's fighting is pride. That he's going to value himself over them. I value me over you. And the result of that brings death to these people. You see, Saul had an equally incredible inward victory because his focus wasn't on himself and his ego, but on God and his glory. You see that there in verse, verse 13? But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. His focus was right, and because of that, he won the inward battle. If his focus was wrong, if his focus was on him and his glory, then he would have lost that war. He would have lost that battle. 
But instead, because he was focused on the Lord, he was focused on his glory, he was able to win that battle. And so Samuel takes the opportunity in verses 14 through 15 to inaugurate Saul a second time. Uh, But this time, everybody's on board that the nation isn't divided. And so God establishes Saul as their king. And there's a big celebration for the provision and the protection of God. You see, we have an enemy that we're powerless against. The world, our own flesh, the devil. And we, we, uh, and it's only when we recognize our hopelessness, our hopeless state, that we'll cry out for salvation. And our Savior, Jesus, came to our rescue with the plan of removing our guilt and removing our shame by sacrificing himself on our behalf. But death couldn't hold Jesus. And because of that, he established his kingdom within his people through his resurrection. And when you come to believe this truth, this gospel message, there is great rejoicing both in heaven and within your own spirit that's made alive. You see, 1 Samuel 11 is really not about Saul. It's about you, and it's about me, and it's about Jesus and his victory. You see, this truth is powerful for you if you need to be saved for the first time, if you've never received Jesus and you've never dedicated your life to following him. But it's also powerful for those of us who have. And if you've walked with Jesus for years, because he is the hope of our salvation. How do I mature? How do I grow? How do I develop? It's Jesus. The enemy looms over your soul that that you are powerless to defeat is declared defeated by King Jesus. But it's it's only you only experience that victory by trusting in him. Not by trying really hard, not by making yourself more awesome, not by, not by just putting yourself out there, not by saying, I can handle it. But no, Jesus wins the victory for you and for me. It's trusting in that victory is how we get access to it. So will you? Will you trust Jesus? Will you stand in the victory that he supplies? Or will you remain on the wrong side of the Jordan, attacked by the enemy? being enslaved and threat of your eyes getting poked out. Where are you going to be? I pray that you'll trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to open it together. And we thank you for just the way that you clearly show us your great love for us. That Jesus, you are for us. That you have given everything on behalf of of obtaining our salvation. And Lord, we want to worship you, we want to honor you, we want to glorify you, we want to exalt you, we want to lift you high. We want to say that your name is, is above every other name. And so together today, we want to commit ourselves to you, saying, Jesus, would you lead us and help us to have the faith to follow you? Thank you for saving. Thank you for providing. We hope in you. We trust in you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.